Maybe at this point we could bring in one of the criticisms that David Novitz has raised to your account, and in particular the focus that you place on the idea of a conceptual space. For he reads you as saying that in order for radical creativity to occur, you have first to have thoroughly explored the relevant conceptual space. And he says, and this is the first counterexample he offers to your account, there are cases, for example, Matisse and Picasso, where they themselves, at least haven't thoroughly explored the relevant conceptual space, but nevertheless have affected a transformation. Yes, well, how thorough is thorough? I mean, I certainly don't think it's necessary that the person concerned, or for that matter, even the culture concerned, need to have exhausted the potential of the previous space. I don't think it needs to be thorough in that sense, but I do think that the more that the potential and indeed the limitations of the space have been recognised, either because they're obvious to anybody who takes a a serious interest because it's just such old hat, hmm? or because it's now become obvious to the person concerned because they have played around with that space, they've moved around in it enough to get a sense of these things, they are becoming bored. Or even if not bored, they're becoming challenged perhaps because they've noticed a limitation which they want to get over. And they've realised that without changing some aspect of the dimensions of that space, they can't get over that limitation. And so they change it. So they have to understand the previous space well enough to be able to do this and they have to understand the previous space well enough to be motivated to do it. So it's not just a sort of random flailing about. Right. David Novitz raises three objections. The third one is another counterexample. That's the case of Goodyear, who supposedly discovered the vulcanization of rubber by just accidentally dropping piece of rubber on a hot surface with sulphur. Now what Novitz suggests is that here we have a very clear case of transformation. He's completely transformed the previous conceptual space of our understanding of rubber. But, he says, this is just accidental. And so it doesn't really count as a genuine case of creativity. I would compare the Goodyear case with the Alexander Fleming case, you know, penicillin. And then we all know the story. He saw this dirty Petri plate that somebody had left the lid off sitting on the windowsill and where anybody else would have just chucked it in the dustbin because it had got stuff on it. He had the wit, which means the knowledge. He had the bacteriological knowledge to notice and to realise the significance of the fact that there were clear areas on the plate surrounding these little colonies. In other words, that there was something seeping out which seemed to be killing the other living things on there, and it ended up being penicillin, you know, the first antibiotic. Now, yes, it was an accident that the stuff grew on that plate and somebody left it there with the lid off and so forth, but it was by no means an accident that he... A, recognise the possibility here, and of course B, and no doubt Goodyear did this too, though I don't know enough about him to say, but he didn't just say, oh, I've discovered penicillin. What he said was, I've discovered something that looks jolly interesting. It looks as though it might be something that's killing bacteria, which indeed he'd already been looking for, interestingly, just as Goodyear had been looking perhaps for. Mm. 
And then he had to do a lot of very, very systematic, serious, careful experimental work, A, to verify the fact that there really was a phenomenon here, and B, to find out what it was, and, and C, eventually, to isolate the chemical that, that was doing the job, if you like. So in other words, he had to do an enormous amount of work in the conceptual space concerned, and he had to have it at his mental fingertip, so to speak, in the first place, to recognise the relevance of that accident. So in a way, this reinforces the point about the importance of looking at the relevant idea or phenomenon in context. Absolutely. The, the mere accidental coming across penicillin or whatever, or dropping a piece of rubber on a hot surface with sulphur, that mere act cannot itself be creative. But in the broader context, where there are certain issues and intentions and projects in mind, and subsequent development of those ideas, then one can start to call it creative. And in that sense, one can bring in issues about exploration and transformation there. That's right. And one can also bring in, I mean, this business of value, which was right there in my definition, and I think it has to be in the definition, because I think that when people talk about creativity, although they use it in, in very different senses, they're always thinking of it, I think, as something which is positively valuable. I think it really is part of the general concept, and it's certainly part of my definition. But there are various things about that which make it very tricky. The first is that it's my view, of course this is philosophically very controversial, but it's my view that although science can, at least in some cases, explain why it is that we value certain things and not other things, I don't think that science could ever, in principle, justify a value. And if that's true, then it follows that you couldn't ever have a scientific theory of creativity which justified the evaluative aspect of your calling the thing creative. It could, at most, explain how that artefact or idea came about, which is what I talk about in the book, and perhaps as well explain why it is that human beings or human beings in a particular culture value this rather than that. Second thing is, of course, that as a matter of fact, although some values seem to be universal and may well be rooted in our evolution, others most certainly aren't. So again, the notion that there's a small set of values which we could hope to identify and once we knew what they were then we could plug them into a theory of creativity mm. and say well you know anything with those things is creative but anything which doesn't have those aspects is not creative I just don't think is on. Okay maybe at this point we could turn to the final of the three objections which is in fact the second objection that Novitz himself raises to your conception of creativity and that's that as he interprets you again Radical creativity, that is creativity in the transformational sense, requires the existence of a conceptual space. And he has some doubts about what a conceptual space is. And he wants to suggest that there are cases of creativity which do not involve anything as sophisticated or definite as transformation of a conceptual space. Now, the two examples he gives are Jenner's invention of the smallpox vaccine and Edison's invention of the phonograph. So I wondered what your response is to that final objection that Novitz raises. Well, I'd say two things. And the first I would say is that 
He's certainly right in saying that my notion of a conceptual space isn't absolutely clear. I mean, we talked earlier about Schoenberg and Bach and Brahms and so forth. Now, you could, and in my book I do, you could talk about the 200 years of Western post-Renaissance tonal music as one musical space being explored for 200 years and, you know, explored more fully as the years went by, which is then transformed by somebody, happened to be Schoenberg, by dropping this very, very fundamental constraint about the home key. But you could say that Baroque music within that tradition is one musical space and Romantic music is another one. So just what are the limits or the principle of individuation, if you like, of a conceptual space, I think isn't clear. And it doesn't actually bother me very much, really, because I think that the phenomena we're talking about, namely human thoughts and human activities, if we're talking about artefacts, are so rich that that sort of thing is going to happen. The other thing I would say is, Take Jenna. Well, Jenna, seems to me, was doing what you or I are doing when we read Shakespeare's line about sleep and the knitting. What Jenna did was to notice an association or to make an association between the clarity of milkmaid skins that they never seemed to get the smallpox, and the fact that other people did. And then he did a bit of asking around, and he found out that they got cowpox, and that this seemed to protect them. So I would say that Jenna was really doing combinational creativity rather than generative conceptual space creativity. And Edison, I don't know enough about exactly how he went about it, to say anything sensible but that's interesting it's because I don't know the detail of precisely how Edison came to those ideas that I can't say anything about it and if you don't know that detail you can't just look at the product and say oh it was creative it wasn't from the open university for more information go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use